strings of my broken heart. What is wrong with Fiori? Other women find love and happiness. I find only this enchantment. But you find it so often. Oh, I know it's all my fault, Henri. I see them as I want them to be, not as they really are. The mist of my dreams surround them. They walk in beauty to the music of a shepherd's pipe. And then the morning wind blows and the mist is swept away. Poor Philippe. I can see him standing there in the cold light of dawn. Shiver. Philip? Oh, Philip. What is he to do with it? That has been over for ages. Forgive my confusion. You were telling me only last week. Last week, last year. So what's the difference? But now that you remind me, it was in many ways superior to Etienne. So many ways. Now, who is Etienne? Have you ever had contact with your legal mind, Henri? It's beyond belief. I wasn't the vision of his dreams. I was the party of the first part. He didn't declare his love. He merely acknowledged that as a state of affection exists. Oh, Henri, why couldn't you be tall and handsome? Two more of these and I shall be. You are the only man who has never bored me. I am the only man who has never loved you. You're listening to episode 71 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In 1960, three years before Betty Friedan's landmark tome, The Feminine Mystique, was released, another book argued for a woman's right to a career and to be more than just a wife. It may surprise you to learn that the book was My Story by Zsa Zsa Gabor, ghostwritten by Gerald Frank. When Zsa Zsa died at the venerable age of 99 in 2016, headlines referred to her as the original Kim Kardashian, a celebrity famous for being famous. And almost the first thing that every newspaper reported was how many husbands she had, nine if you're counting. If you peel back the reputation she's been given, though, there's a lot more beneath the surface. In reality, Zsa Zsa had a formidable work ethic, She had a vibrant imagination and the energy to launch herself as a bon vivant, a storyteller, an actress, and a businesswoman. Zsa Zsa belongs to a legacy of modern wit from sass-mouthed dames such as Anita Luce, Dorothy Parker, Mae West, and Tallulah Bankhead. She was a great satirist who lampooned the sexual marketplace that she was raised to trade in. If Zsa isn't daughter of Lorelai Lee, then I don't know my onions. Zsa went after her heart's desire. She was vivacious and lusty. One night, Zsa and her third husband, George Sanders, went to have dinner at James and Pamela Mason's house. They listened as their hostess told them about the fun she had being a guest on a chat show. George wanted to see how good Pamela really was and started asking her random questions as though he were the host. James Mason, ever the gentleman, said, let Zsa Zsa try too. George sat the women in chairs next to each other and asked them a series of questions. Pamela Mason had stage training and she remained poised and quick-witted. But Zsa Zsa became flustered when her know-it-all husband expected instant wit off the cuff. At one point, George stopped the proceedings and declared to his host that Zsa Zsa wouldn't be any good on a a talk show because she was too stupid. 
The words twisted a hole in Zsa Zsa's heart. For the two years that they had been married, Zsa Zsa played the wife to a celebrity. Often lonely and miserable, she learned that the role of wife is next to invisible. She brought him midnight snacks, cooked his meals, rubbed his back, bought his cigarettes, paid the bills, listened to complaints about studio politics and how acting was beneath him. She stood by him beaming when he collected his Oscar for All About Eve in 1950. When she hosted parties, she did all the work and then discovered that the stars carried on nothing but shop talk to which she had nothing to contribute. She was expected to fill the drinks, keep the food hot, and point the way to the powder room when the important folks talked. George's schedule meant bedtime at 9 o'clock for his early studio calls. Zsa Zsa looked mournfully at the lavish wardrobe she never wore and the party invitations she had to turn down. Meanwhile, George would dash, dash off to Mexico to see Dolores Del Rio, just on business, of course. Or he would escape for months on location, where she was not invited. If a reporter asked Shaja a question, George would stop the man and say, Why are you asking her? She's just a wife. George called her his little coca-lean, his spicy cookie. But he wouldn't give her so much as a cigarette. He berated her in public and behaved as though he were the only person who mattered in the house. At night, before she fell asleep, Zsa began to dream, and it wasn't of her husband, jewels, a fur, or a luxury car. She fantasized about a career of her own. This is the real fairy tale from Zsa's life story, not the one her mother raised her for that ended at the altar. Zsa became the heroine of her own story, once she had proven that she was far more talented and ambitious than any husband imagined. She wasn't a housefrau. She was a star. What happened was her brother-in-law, Tom Conway, invited Zsa on the TV show Bachelor's Haven, where he was sometimes a guest. Initially, she turned him down because George's words were a sting that lingered, that she was too stupid. It wouldn't be any good. Tom assured her that she only needed to be herself. Zsa took the plunge. The show's format had them read letters out loud from the lovelorn, and the guest offered advice. Zsa prepared by wearing a knockout ensemble. She had a black off-the-shoulder Balenciaga gown, accessorized with diamond earrings, diamond necklace, bracelet, and a 20-carat solitaire ring. The moderator whistled at Zsa's gems. She brushed, brushed it off by saying, these were just her working diamonds. The crowd went wild. With each answer that she gave, Zsa grew the audience in her favor. They fell deeper and deeper under her spell. One of the letters was a woman writing to ask what she should do about her husband, a traveling salesman. She was sure he cheated on her while he was on the road. Shoot him in the legs, Shaja advised. Another woman wrote in to ask what she should do about a broken engagement. Her fiancé had been generous. 
He had given her a house, a new car, a mink, a stove, a diamond ring. What should she return? Zsa Zsa replied without a moment's hesitation, give him back the stove. She was brash, unfiltered, sophisticated, and very sexy. Jaja recalled that she was just being herself, but she should have taken more credit for the humor and wit that she displayed. And any time people appear spontaneous and off the cuff, it most certainly comes from preparation and practice. The television station was inundated with people ringing and writing to say how much they enjoyed Jaja's appearance. Bachelor's Haven's ratings went through the roof and they wanted her to return the following week. They couldn't pay much, they told her. It was just $36 a visit and a cup of coffee, but it opened a series of doors for Zsa She was invited on more programs. She made the cover of Life magazine and other magazines. One night, she was out dancing with Tom Conway. Mervyn Leroy, a director who made his way from Warners to MGM once he discovered Lana Turner, tapped Zsa on the shoulder. He had a new project ready to start called Lovely to Look At. There was a part for a French model. He was so sure that Zsa would be perfect for the part that he wasn't even going to test her for it. After all, he had seen her on television already, and she had what he wanted. The part was hers if she wanted it. When George Sanders returned from the UK, he rang the mansion in Bel Air, wondering where Zsa was. Why wasn't she at the airport to meet him? The butler informed Sir that the missus was on the set at MGM, working on a picture. Startled, George rang the studio to talk to Zsa and was told that she was too busy to come to the phone. Back at the house, he saw the Life magazine cover and all the other magazine covers boasting a new star. One headline said, Zsa is pronounced wow. He was dumbstruck that little wifey was now the talk of the town. She went from a $36 for an appearance on a chat show to $1,000 a week in a contract in MGM. And she had Russell Birdwell working for her for free as her press agent. He was the man who had invented the search for Scarlett O'Hara, the publicity juggernaut that went on for years. One night, walking around Hollywood with George, a fan stopped them and asked for Zsa's autograph. The girl then turned and looked at George and said, you look familiar, and asked if he was anyone famous. At that moment, the look on George's face told her that their marriage was over. Jose Ferrer was cast as Toulouse Lautrec in Moulin Rouge. He owned the rights to the novel based on the artist's life story. Ferrer had won a Best Actor Oscar for Cyrano de Bergerac two years before, and he planned to turn the novel about the artist into a stage production. John Huston intervened, and when they met, they bonded over stories about John's father, Walter. Jose Ferrer had seen Walter Houston on the stage many times and felt that the pictures only captured a hint of what the man was capable of. Zsa took second billing in the production, which was quite a feat for an actress with just two 
films to her credit. Director John Huston had balked at the idea of casting Zsa Zsa, but it wasn't his call to make. James Wolfe, who had formed Romulus Production Company with his brother John, thought she was the epitome of the Belle Epoque dancer Jane of Real. Jane had been a cabaret star and was the subject of many paintings by Henri Toulouse-Lautrec. Zsa Zsa had a frosty relationship with her director. She felt John Huston, she said, was the kind of dour man who makes me feel that he thinks everything I say to him is a lie. By way of rehearsal, he took her through trials in a long, noisy room where he sat back at the far end and asked her to, pro- to project. She couldn't understand what purpose it served since she was not acting for the stage where she had to be heard in the back row. The first thing she learned in MGM was never to speak loudly under the microphone. Houston shouted abuse at her on the set in front of a large cast. One morning, Jaja remembered that he gave out to her when he was terribly hungover. She recalled that John Houston looked like a shrunken monkey, all dehydrated from the whiskey. He quipped, Miss Gabor, you can't act, you can't sing, and you can't dance. At least show your face to the camera. Houston placed a piece of paper with a red heart drawn on it under the camera and instructed Shaja to make love to it. From the moment she received the script, written by Houston and Anthony Wheeler, Jaja studied her lines. In Jane Avril, I saw myself, or myself as I wanted to be. Ossie Morris, the cinematographer, claimed that Jaja moved like a tank and that Houston had to be taught or had to teach her how to move on camera. He had obviously internalized the director's low opinion of Jaja. There's no way that it could have been true. From her accomplishments in fencing and debutante training, Zsa knew how to move. Her appearances in two pictures in MGM show a graceful deportment, as well as her television appearances and newsreel clips. She had been practicing how to make a big entrance her entire life. When Zsa appears at the top of a grand staircase in the Moulin Rouge, She is a star before she reaches the last step. She glides like a swan, arms outstretched to embrace the room. Jaja lip-syncs a song sung by Muriel Smith, who plays the Algerian dancer in the Moulin Rouge. Jaja is dressed in a white picture hat, trimmed with black ribbon and ostrich feathers, dyed red, a white off-the-shoulder blouse, and a full red skirt. She looks like a Fenda Sieclo box of sweets. She leaves an impression in the air like powdered sugar. Wearing an assortment of eye-popping designs from Elsa Scaparelli, the candy box impression develops throughout the picture with one glorious confection after another. She is the Belle Epoque Bonbon in elaborate gowns and chartreuse, one in red with Scaparelli's signature shocking pink gloves. 
The real standout, though, an eye popper, is a black mermaid gown with a silver snake that coils and winds itself around Zsa Zsa's hourglass figure, trimmed with red and a red picture hat. When she is on screen, you do not look at anyone else. Next to the pallid cognac burn of Henri, Jane is bright and bubbly champagne. Effervescent, she glows. Jane's unbridled enthusiasm is infectious and casts aside the deepest shadows that Henri carries. When Jose Ferrer channels bitter sarcasm with quips such as, marriage is like a dull meal with a dessert at the very beginning, Jane lightens the mood. If artists like Henri suffer, sassmouth dames like Jane prosper. When she looks at Henri's epiphany, a poster to advertise the Moulin Rouge, Jaja zeroes in on the paint, painting's weakness. She isn't in it. As, John, as Jane of Vriel, Jaja's only trouble is which suitor she should accept and how to dispose of the one who has grown boring. In one scene, she complains of a lover who's boring and wonders why Henri is the one who's never done so. He explains it's because he's never fallen in love with her. In the scene, Jane as Jaja, they are of a piece. They are one. In her tumultuous history with men, the only thing she could not endure was a boring man. She could take egotists, workaholics, control freaks, charlatans, dope fiends, and perverts, but not a boring man. Herbert Hutner, husband number four, was dull as soap. So she left him, even though she, he was loaded and generous. Although Moulin Rouge is the life story of a famous artist, the whole picture hinges on Toulouse-Lautrec's relationships with women. His story begins when, after his tragic accident, the first girl he ever loved cursed him, called him an ugly little monster who no woman could ever love. Houston's picture hinges upon the malediction of a girl, which makes him warped and suspicious of every other woman. Moulin Rouge includes three different mid-century acting styles for central female actors. Jaja is the star, the woman whose mere presence is sufficient to propel the action forward. When the picture grows too, mor too morose or lags, in waltzes Jaja Gabor. She's like the scene when Henri decides to live and turns off the gas jets and opens all the windows. Jaja is that clean, fresh breeze that blows through and clears out the funk. Without her, this picture would be a turgid exercise. Colette Marchand, as the sex worker Mar Marie, performs a fully-blown method acting style with voracious scenery chewing, whether to manipulate Henri's sexual need or to lash out in self-pity when she feels exposed among the swells. Colette makes Marie a debauched operetta. Colette had her share of troubles with Houston, too. She was short of breath in a corset during the scene when Henri takes her character to a restaurant. She was in distress, could barely keep her head straight, 
But Houston made her do the scene over and over again until he got what he wanted. When he did get what he wanted, he hugged Colette and offered her a bouquet and a bottle of champagne. As Miriam, the mannequin, the independent woman who falls in love with Henri, Suzanne Flan exhibits the underplay that is the mainstay of long-suffering protagonists in women's pictures, from Margaret Sullivan and Irene Dunn in Hollywood, or Danielle Dario in France. She tells Henri about how she worked 10 hours a day modeling clothes in shops for one franc, yet she spent two francs 20 hours of her grueling labor to buy his painting of Marie. Suzanne does not choose scenery, and she doesn't lapse into self-pity when spurned by the man she loves. She suffers it quietly. She's the study of underplay. John Huston was known for his onset romances. Moulin Rouge was no exception. The crew had assumed he would go for fiery Colette Marchand. He was instantly drawn to Suzanne Flan, though. You do have to wonder about the wellspring of energy that he had. He had rows with the Technicolor people and a producer who walked off in a huff when Houston insisted on shooting the picture in continuity. Sam Spiegel had still not paid him a dime for the hit The African Queen, so he was barely scraping by financially. He had to coordinate difficult shoots in Paris and London. And then he was carrying on with Suzanne Flan after hours. There was a party to celebrate Bastille Day. Houston had been out with Suzanne, Jose Ferrer, Zsa Zsa, and Ali Khan. Later, when Houston took Suzanne home, a crazed man attacked him once the taxi door opened with a series of quick punches. Houston chased the man, who turned at one point, drew a gun, and fired. Houston heard a click and decided it wasn't loaded. He later tracked the man down and beat him to a pulp. The man was in love with Suzanne. In all of this drama, add in Houston's usual heavy drinking and smoking, Plus, Ricky Soma was on location, and you wonder how he got anything this good done. Moulin Rouge looks like nothing else. John Huston told cinematographer Ossie Morris that he wanted the picture to look as though it had been directed by Toulouse-Lautrec. Huston sent Morris to the museum in LB to study the artist's work and color palette. Morris decided to use different colored gels for characters to evoke their their sense of personality or a mood. He used bluish green for Lautrec, pink for Miriam, purple for Marie. Jaja at times shimmers under gold or hot pink gels. Technicolor was a franchise at the time. Filmmakers leased their cameras. No one ever bought them, according to Ossie Morris. The Technicolor people had advisors on hand who reviewed the process in the film to ensure that it was of their standard. John Huston didn't want the vibrant, crisp, clearly defined look of Technicolor pictures of that era. He wanted something that looked fused and less saturated. Ossie Morris experimented with using smoke and fog on the sets. 
He also rigged a system where he ran the film over the fog before a scene to wash out some of the trademark bold color. The look of Moulin Rouge reminds me of the way absinthe was served. They put a sugar cube over a sieve and then poured the bitter green potion. The result is pure dissipation on the screen. The executives from Technicolor were furious. They refused to take responsibility for the picture and accused John Huston of ruining the name of Technicolor. Huston resisted the pressure to change, and he added a fuck you to close negotiations. In a final surreal deathbed scene, Henri, at 37, lies under a canopy bed in his parents' country chateau. After his father tells him that his paintings now hang in the Louvre, a rare honor for a living artist, a parade of characters from his days in the Moulin Rouge enter the chamber in a simulated hallucination. Zsa Zsa swans in again as fresh as a spring daisy. Jaja recalled that Houston kept changing the last scene. He couldn't get it right. He wasn't happy with how it was working out. So she offered to ad lib. Just trust her and see how it went. She enters the deathbed chamber with a trail of characters from the Moulin Rouge trailing in her wake. She coos, Henri, my dear, we just heard you were dying. We simply had to say goodbye. It was divine knowing you. We will see you later, of course. But now uh, you must forgive me. I must fly. There is the most beautiful creature waiting for me in Maxims. Goodbye, Henri. Goodbye. Zsa Gabor was only 17 years old when she married for the first time to Turkish diplomat Burhan Belge. Her mother, Jolie, who had developed innovations for the cultured pearl market and created a costume jewelry empire, raised her three daughters to make a good match. When Jaja tired of Burhan, she used her diplomat wife's passport to make an arduous journey to the United States through many countries. She arrived in 1941 when her sister Eva was already learning the craft as an actress. In 1942, Zsa Zsa married Conrad Hilton, the hotel magnate. Connie turned out to be a miser and a workaholic. The freedom Zsa Zsa had anticipated once she arrived in the United States in 1941 proved to be illusory. Conrad put her on a strict budget. He ignored her for his work. She was lonely, and once he even took her to a brothel. Jaja became overwhelmed with stress while she waited for her family to escape the Nazi-occupied Hungary. Hilton had her committed against her will to a psychiatric asylum. Like many women in mid-century institutions, Jaja was subject to cruelty, abuse, and the horrors of insulin shock therapy and straitjackets. Among her many husbands and lovers, Zsa Gabor cared most for George Sanders, husband number three. Zsa's love affair with Sanders began before they even met. When she saw him on the big screen in Moon and Sixpence in 1942, she was enamored with the big brood he played, who pushes women around and calls them beasts. 
When she saw him at a cocktail party, she didn't hold back. She told him that she was in love with him. He replied, how very well I understand you. After the party, George walked her home and asked for caviar and milk. Jaja didn't have any milk, so she gave him champagne. He said he might stay forever. They had a torrid romance when she was still married but separated from Conrad Hilton, and Jaja had her newborn baby Francesca with her. When Jaja's divorce came through, they were married. On their wedding night, George said he didn't know if he could make love to her ever again. He explained, you used to be the glamorous Mrs. Hilton, and now you're just Mrs. Sanders. They played chess instead of having sex on their wedding night. Jaja knew that she was, you know, um, gold in terms of material when she did her appearances. She spoofed herself before anyone else had the chance. George Sanders was in for that big surprise when he returned after his shoot for Ivanhoe, and she was on the cover of all those magazines and being paid $1,000 a week. Some of Zsa's best stories are of her marriage to George. There was the time they were in Majorca, and he was convinced that she was having an affair with a handsome Spanish guide when she returned late one evening. He hung Zsa out the window over the terrace, holding on to her only by her dress, which she noted was lucky to have a tight fit. There was the time he nearly strangled her, but she talked so much he forgot to kill her. One of the juiciest stories is about the time he coaxed her to seduce a priest on a train. George was in one of his frequent blue periods. Zsa chalked his moods up to his Russian blood. George perked up at the scenario instantly. He began to whisper a filthy idea in her ear. Why didn't she seduce the priest right then and there? A man is just a man after all. What man could resist Zsa As he goaded her, the couple stopped to exchange pleasantries with the man in black. Later, the priest rang Zsa and asked to meet. George was brimming with vigor. It was as though the prospect of being a cuckold shook him out of his big funk. George was beside himself with the filthy possibilities of his wife seducing a man of God. Zsa met the priest who had the horn for her in a big way, but she turned him down. She felt guilty and couldn't do it, but to please George, she told him not to ask what happened. She would show him what she did with the man of cloth later. Moulin Rouge made Zsa an international sensation. The response from critics and audiences was as welcome as a shower of diamonds. John Huston sent a telegram which read, You and Technicolor saved our picture. Congratulations, John Huston. During her moment of triumph, George should have been at her side, but he was en route to begin production on Journey to Italy with Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman. He believed there should only be one star per family. Dejected and lonely, she might as well have had a neon sign that she was ripe for an affair. On the day of her film's premiere, she got on the elevator in the New York City Plaza 
owned by her ex-husband, Connie Hilton, and met the most notorious playboy of the era, Porfirio Rubirosa. From their brief exchange on the elevator, Ruby rang the concierge and had his room exchanged for the one next door to Ms. Gabor. When Jaja woke from a nap, she found her room stuffed with roses. Would she meet him for a drink? He rang the room and whispered that he was just next door. She would need only unlock the door and he would be there. Where George aspired to be known as the great woman-hater of his age, aloof and laconic, Ruby was the type of man who ignited in the company of women. People said that he had an incredible gift for hanging on words. It didn't even matter if the speaker was a man or a woman. He had this intensity of presence, of being in the moment with you and listening, that had created this special intimacy and bond. People didn't forget him, and he didn't forget people. He listened intently and remembered what people told him. He was passionate and worked hard to cultivate seasoned cosmopolitan tastes. He had been married to French film star Danielle Derriot and Doris Duke, who was reportedly one of the richest women in the world. He was the right hand to Rafael Trujillo, dictator of the Dominican Republic. Some people believe he was a hitman for Trujillo, picking off the dictator's enemies around the world. Ruby was devoted to polo and car racing, in addition to luxury and romancing women. In Paris, waiters called the extra-large pepper mill Le Ruby Rosa. One ex described his manhood as of grotesque proportions. One of his polo teammates stole a jockstrap from Ruby Rosa, then nailed it over the door to the stable where he kept his prized stallions, a talisman for virility. Another notice of his anatomical charm, also from a man, said that when Ruby Rosa unzipped, he thought he was seeing Yul Brenner in a turtleneck. Sean Levy, Ruby's biographer, has devoted a whole chapter to Little Ruby. When the time came to dress for the Moulin Rouge premiere, Jaja discovered that she could not reach the zipper to her tight-fitting dress. She did the only sensible thing and rang next door, with conditions. Once she returned from the premiere, flushed with praise, Ruby helped her with that zipper again. For years, Jaja went about in a haze of hot sex with Ruby. She explains that it was like she was narcotized, drugged by him. She couldn't say no. She couldn't get enough. George filed for divorce after one too many pictures of Jaja and the Dominican playboy surfaced. She put her career on the back burner. She did more television than film work because it was less work and less commitment. In 1953, the Gabor sisters had signed to do a nightclub act in Las Vegas. Ruby had been pressuring Jaja to marry him. She refused. If she married him, she would have to give up her career. And how could she abandon what she had dreamed of and worked so hard to achieve, now that she finally had it? Ruby didn't really work, so he didn't understand. They had a row one night about it, and Ruby struck her in the face. 
for opening night, Zsa Zsa was going to have a massive shiner. Frantic, she went to Russell Birdwell, her publicist, and asked him what she should do. In the meantime, Eva Gabor's friend Marlena Dietrich called in to share some pancake makeup to conceal the black eye. Marlena was also in town with her cabaret act. Russell Birdwell told Zsa Zsa that she shouldn't try and hide it. Embrace it. He pulled out a black eye patch and told her to wear it on stage. The papers were already full of reports about the lover's quarrel, so why not capitalize on it? When Zsa Zsa took the stage that night, the pirate look was a huge hit. It was a look of the moment. One night, Marlena's backup dancers appeared wearing identical black eye patches. Comics wore them in their performances. In New York hotspots, the cognoscenti wore black eye patches. Jaja always made a splash. For revenge, Ruby married Barbara Hutton, an extremely wealthy woman. She gave Ruby $2.5 million as a wedding present and also a private plane outfitted as much as any Park Avenue penthouse. Even years after his marriage, Jaja and Ruby went on the sexual merry-go-round for years. She rejected his proposals, unwilling to give up her career. Ruby Rosa had brought erotic calamity to scores of women, including Ava Gardner, Marilyn Monroe, and Jean Tierney. Ruby weaponized his sexual charms to extract submission, wealth, and fame. He nearly destroyed Zsa's career when he asked her to introduce Trujillo's son to the Hollywood crowd. Spoiled, rotten, ramfist Trujillo thanked Zsa for fulfilling his starstruck ambitions to meet the film colony royalty, especially his obsession, Kim Novak. And to thank her, he sent a Mercedes convertible and a chinchilla coat. A congressman from Ohio spat her name on the House floor one day when he held up the headlines. Why was the U.S. handing out aid to the Dominican Republic when it just siphoned off for rich film stars? Zsa Zsa's name was mud, but not for long. Zsa Zsa lived nine lives on television. She forged a cosmetics empire. Her books are brilliant. If you find a copy of any of them, but especially her advice guide, snap it up. Among the juicy tidbits, take the honeymoon before the wedding because you'll enjoy it more. And also a few weeks with a man will give you time to back out of it if he's intolerable. Also, she's against alimony because it saps your ambition and makes women lazy. One more thing before I leave you. Zsa's last big round of publicity came after an incident where she slapped a police officer in 1989. Look at the uniformed thugs who are terrorizing and murdering citizens on the street today, gassing and shooting people for exercising their civic rights. You know the cop deserved to be slapped. The following books helped me to write this episode. Jaja Gabor, My Story by Jaja and Gerald Frank. Once in a Lifetime is Not Enough by Jaja Gabor and Wendy Lee. How to Get a Man, How to Keep a Man, How to Get Rid of a Man by Jaja Gabor. 
Finding Jaja, The Gabors Behind the Legend by Sam Staggs. An open book by John Houston. The Houstons by Lawrence Grobel. Memoirs of a Professional Cad by George Sanders. The Last Playboy, The High Life of Porfirio Rubirosa by Sean Levy. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend or share it on social media. Join me next time for episode 72 when I talk about Eva Gabor in Paris Model from 1953. Thanks very much.